0: Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Secretary Antony Blinken has made it clear that he believes the U.S. must set the rules for the world. Also, Washington seeks to upgrade its ability to fight economic wars. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dr. Ken Hammond. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. Ken, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
1: Hey, great to be here, guys.
0: Uh, good old Antony Blinken, he was speaking at a, at, uh, to the press at Stanford University on Monday and he said Americans have to be the ones who are at the table, who are helping to shape the rules, the norms, the standards by which technology is used. I don't think he means helping to shape the rules. I think he means coercively imposing the rules on everyone else. But maybe I'm wrong. Your thoughts, Ken Hammond.
1: Well, I mean, this is just such a straightforward. I mean, in, in, in certain ways. This is just such a refreshing thing. He's actually saying what we understand is the case, which is that it's the United States. It's American capital that makes the rules, imposes those rules on the world. And if people don't like that, if other countries can't go along with that, if other people want to pursue their own courses, they're going to face consequences. They're going to face problems coming from the United States. It was a very straightforward statement on his part, you know, couched in this language of national security and technology transfer and all that. But basically just laying out the idea that it is the United States, which is the one power in the world that is legitimately entitled to set the agenda for everybody else.
2: He says, if we're not, if the United States isn't there, then someone else will be. And these rules are going to get uh, shaped in ways that don't reflect our values and our interests. Someone else will be. And what that takes me to is a story we discussed yesterday about, I think it was Indonesia and China and the bullet train. And the fact that now high-speed rail is in Indonesia, thanks to China, and the fact that Indonesia went with China because China was willing to be very flexible with their terms and absorbing costs and other things that made it cost-effective for Indonesia to have high-speed rail. And... The United States would never have done anything like that, and I just think about the IMF and the World Bank and how uh, usurious their terms are. So, the fact that the United States isn't at the table doesn't mean it's a bad thing for the geopolitical landscape.
1: Oh, quite the contrary. And this, I mean, that that case with Indonesia, and it's not just Indonesia. China has. Uh, been very clear, and there have been a number of articles recently about this about its its willingness its its eagerness indeed to help other countries develop their domestic infrastructure and high speed rail, which after all the technology exists its they know how to build it. They've refined this over the last couple of decades to the point where China has a high-speed rail system that integrates the entire country in a way that really no one else has, and certainly the United States, which can't even build a train to run between San Francisco and Los Angeles. You know, we're just not even – not just at the table. We're not even in the room you know so uh, this 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 idea that somehow the united states is going to thwart china's technological development is just it's laughable in many ways because china is at the cutting edge of, of of a wide range of technologies and their willingness to share those and as you say to be adaptable to be flexible not to say you know you do it this way or we're not playing but to say how can we work together on this this is exactly what's going to position them to become more and more engaged with the, the the developing world, people in Asia, Africa, Latin America, in ways that are you know mutually beneficial as as they like to say but it's it's just an accurate assessment or an accurate description of those relationships so yeah this is this is an area where where I think we're going to see a lot more development uh, in the in the coming years
3: you know uh, uh,
1: other thing uh,
2: really oh, could quick, sure. quick, really, really quickly it, this also makes me think about the meeting between Blinken and the Chinese in Anchorage when the Chinese basically got up and walked out of the room and said, we're not going to sit here and let you lecture us and think that you can speak to us in such an insulting and
1: demeaning manner.
2: And they got up and left Tony Blinken sitting in the room by himself.
1: (laughs) Well, I think, you know, <laughs> we we've, we've talked about this a few times in the past that that china at in, in the in the you know the third decade of the 21st century is no longer in a position where it has to uh in any way sort of subordinate itself or accommodate itself to american global domination and that of course infuriates american political elites and economic elites who are used to running the world and having their say and you know whatever we say goes that that what Lincoln just said about, we set the rules and you just go along with them. China won't play that game anymore. And that, uh, that makes the, that makes the American elites kind of, kind of crazy. And so, you know, whether it's, whether it's technology development or whether it's national security on the part of the Chinese, or whether it's building, you know, these win-win relationships through the Belt and Road Initiative, all of those things, can only be seen by the american elites as as a threat to their power and their privileges and their profits and that's something that that basically makes them makes him a little wacky
0: well you know the statement from tony blinken americans quote have to be the ones who are at the table who are helping helping to shape the rules, the norms, the standards by which technology is used. That is the definition of multipolarity. However, as Tony Blinken does what Tony Blinken does, which is lies, in reality, when you read the rest of it, he goes on to say that the U.S. has to be there in order to shape the rules to reflect their values. Well, that doesn't sound like you're helping to form things. It sounds like you're coercively doing that. And there's only one or two ways for that to happen. Either everybody goes along with it or you impose it on them. Certainly everybody's not going along with it. That is why I argue the United States, the neocons, the Tony Blinkens are at war with the entire world. Your thoughts?
1: No, I think that's I think that's increasingly and and very sadly the the state of play. You know, uh, American elites are so desperate to hang on to their, their position that they're they're taking measures that in the short term, yes, they might have some negative, coercive effect on China. They might have an impact that's not going to be beneficial for the people of China or indeed the people of the world. But, but American elites don't care about that. What they care about is hanging on to their ability to run the world and, and enrich themselves at everybody else's expense. In the long run, though, these measures are counterproductive because all it does is is further accelerate what is already in train, which is China's emergence as a largely self-reliant, you know, source of innovation and development. Yes, it's going to put some obstacles in that path, but it's not going to derail that process. This is a deep structural realignment in global affairs that's not going to be stopped or thwarted or set aside by these these short-sighted interventionist policies of, of the American government. And that's just, it's a sad thing because it's counterproductive Frankly, for us, for you and me and and ordinary working American people, because this is it's, – it's just – it's, it's really in many ways a very self-destructive long-term approach. They think that they're being tough guys and they're going to push the world around, but that era is over, and they're just – they're having obviously a very difficult time recognizing that.
2: While at Stanford, Tony Blinken also makes claims about Beijing's Taiwan invasion plans. He says that they have decided to capture Taiwan much faster than previously thought, and they they may use force to do so. Uh, Professor Hammond, Dr. Hammond, expert on Chinese history, sir, do you have any indication, if you would please tell the court, do you have any indications that China is planning to invade Taiwan? Answer, if you would tell the jury. Uh, historically, when was the last time China did something like that?
1: Well, China doesn't generally do that at all. And, <laughs> oh. I, and I think that, that Secretary, Secretary Blinken needs to do one very simple thing, which is to read uh, the speech that uh, that uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping just gave at the opening of the 20th Party Congress in Beijing, because he very clearly reiterated, rearticulated for those who have not been able to understand what China's position is, which is that this is a question. The question of the status of Taiwan is a question that will be resolved by the Chinese people on both sides of the straits in their own way, in their own time, without. Any interference from the outside and those from the outside who try to interfere are only going to find themselves frustrated he doesn't rule out he will not rule out nor should the Chinese rule out the idea that they might have to you know at some point in order to uh, in order to avert foreign intervention foreign interference they're not going to rule out the possibility of the use of force to protect China's national interests, But that's not what they're talking about. He's not threatening. No one is threatening, oh, we're going to invade Taiwan tomorrow. The point is, when they say we won't rule this out, Blinken, Biden you know, the Republicans, they all jump up and down and say, oh, if they won't rule out the use of force, that means they're going to invade tomorrow. But that's not at all what they say. Their clear position that has been maintained steadfastly, there's no change, is that this is going to be something that's resolved. It's a historical legacy, and it's something that needs to be resolved in its own way, in its own time. The The United,
2: the United States often used trope is, everything's on the table or nothing's off the table. Th- that's the same thing that the Chinese are saying. We won't rule anything out is the same thing as Joe Biden or Tony
0: Blinken saying, everything's on the table. Libertarian Institute, Washington seeks to upgrade ability to fight economic wars I have a feeling over the, sex, uh, over the next several months, their ability to, uh, f- uh, to fight economic wars is going to take a dramatic turn in the opposite direction in the EU. Your thoughts?
1: Well, I think that, uh, that the situation in Europe is, is quite volatile right now. The next few months are going to be a real crunch. Uh, I, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm here in Italy right now for this fall, and people here are very, very nervous. They're very anxious about how they're going to heat their homes. Uh, the The place that i 'm living we 've been informed that starting October twentieth the heat can be turned on for two hours a day, and when we get to November, it jumps way up we 're going to be able to turn the heat on for six hours a day whoa uh, you know as we move into the as we move into the winter, the prospects are for <laughs> it 's kind of funny it 's almost like a new cold war in the sense that people here are going to be cold. And uh, and that's because of America's war on uh, on the rest of the world, you know. So it's a it, uh, Europe is facing some very very serious challenges, and I think a lot of people in Europe are starting to reflect on the question of whether or not this complete supine subordination to American interests, as uh, so called, to American domination, is really the way that their their governments should be acting. Is is this really what's in the interest of people? Uh, and, of course, we ask that same question in America. Is this really in our interest? And I think it, it, it's very, very clear that the answer is no.
0: Well, I don't think I will be coming to visit you this winter in Italy, Dr. Ken <laughs> Dr. Ken Ham is a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Gulf states are joining Turkey in a call for Ukraine peace talks. Also, Russia continues to hit Ukrainian infrastructure and Germany may have crossed a red line for Russia in providing arms to Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Mark Sloboda. Mark is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
4: Garland. Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour.
0: Responsible Statecraft reports. Diplomacy Watch. Gulf states join Turkey in push for Ukraine peace talks with chances for negotiations at a low point. Several Middle Eastern leaders are trying to fashion themselves as peacemakers. You know, Mark, Turkey, it's very interesting, but Turkey's really fashioning. You know, it's turning out to be kind of a hub a lot of ways, economics, diplomacy. Your thoughts on what's happening with Turkey, Mark Slavoto.
4: Yeah. So Erdogan is uh, definitely, uh, you know, pulling out all the stops, playing the role of statesman uh, trying to uh, present his credentials of neutrality or at least equally shafting both sides. Um, uh, A lot of this, I think, is probably intended as domestic politics. Um, the Turkish economy is not doing very well. It has not been doing very well for a long time, and there is a lot of political discontent in Turkey, and Erdogan would like to continue to rule there for the future. So playing the statesman uh, is, is seen as a way of, of utilizing foreign policy for uh, domestic purposes. But as for any actual desire... To bring peace to the situation? No. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
4: Peace is the last thing Erdogan wants Because he's benefiting Playing both sides against each other Selling drones to Ukraine uh, Hashing out uh, deals for, for grain transfers That see Turkey profiting off of the exchange uh, uh, Turkey is making money Coming and going with all of this um, And this latest Idea being floated by the Kremlin, I sincerely hope that this is more diversionary political nor warfare than it is any serious intent to turn uh, to to rely on Turkey as an energy hub. Um, I mean, Russia has previously had to rely on Ukraine and Poland as transit countries, uh, and that hasn't worked out so well. I, I have a feeling that relying on Turkey led by Erdogan or not, uh, as a transit country or, you know, necessary to get, um, you know, have a relationship with a consumer on a long term basis, um, I, I, I just do not see uh, Turkey as a reliable partner in that regard. Um, I, also, it is seemingly dependent on the quixotic rule of Erdogan, which could be ended at a moment's notice. It is never good uh, in foreign policy to leave so much hanging on the continued rule of one particular person. Even Erdogan could be voted out of office, although that gets increasingly difficult as Turkey uh, uh, starts to look less and less like a democracy, but there are other ways that that leaders exit the stage as well. So I'm not quite sure if this is a serious plan being presented by the Kremlin, but at least for the moment, Erdogan is loving the flattery and eating it up.
2: A a couple of things. One, there's a a line or a paragraph here, Uh, Abdul Kalik Abdullah, an Emirati academic who's close to the UAE government, says that the UAE president is the only one that can talk to Putin to stop the drift to nuclear confrontation. Well, I don't know that he, that President Putin is the one that, that needs to be spoken to about that. So I'm wondering, does that statement in this piece give you insight into what the objective of the piece is, that That's one question. And the other question is, and these are two pieces that we hadn't sent over to you, but I'm sure you're aware, you've got the u uh, s. lawmakers seeking emergency authorization to uh, emergency powers for the Ukraine war. What signal does does this type of military spending escalation say to you? About the United States'
4: objectives. Um, well, first of all, about the idea of the Middle East states, uh, states being some type of of serious, um, you know, vehicle for peace in this regard. That's not serious. Peace will be found between the, the U.S. and Russia sitting down at the table together. Um, I mean, the table may have to be somewhere, but it doesn't mean that Middle East states. You know whether turkey or qatar or or anyone uh, will have any serious role in this i think i see this more as these states declaring their neutrality in this conflict which considering the context that russia is you know saying that they are always available for peace talks while the west is openly saying we're not interested at all in peace and we forbid the kiev regime from seeking. Peace. I think it's also a backhanded way of throwing a finger at the United States. Um, that that's the way I read this, rather than any any serious chance of of peace talks. Uh, when it comes to uh, and and the lines about nuclear stuff, this is just. Distortion and disinfo from the West—it's being talked about, um, uh, you know, nonstop in the Western Mm. media. I regard it as a form of projection, and I I guess the irresponsible statecraft simply felt the need to pay lip service to it for whatever reason. Um, When it comes to uh, shifting the the call for the Pentagon to shift to war. Uh, time economy measures. Uh, Very specifically in that piece, they actually focused more on China than they did on Russia in the authorization requests. They they specifically noted on both, yes, we're going to continue to fly China, and it's about our long-term pivot towards conflict with China. And that should frighten everyone. Uh, Because um, that on on top of the ongoing conflict, they're talking about direct conflict between two nuclear armed states, the two largest economies in the world, Uh, you know, if. You know the proxy war waged against Russia in Ukraine is enough to, you know, um, uh, uh, have a a pivot point and a watershed in uh, global relations in terms of world order. A U.S.-China confrontation would shatter it to a million pieces Uh, is a even more serious affair and that the Pentagon is openly saying they need to build up arms for war with China and are going to the extent of already, uh, you know, taking wartime's economic powers with regards to that. Uh, I find that terrifying.
0: You know, Mark, another uh, uh, um, article in Responsible Statecraft, why Crimea is the key to the Ukraine war. It's it's if you look at it, they're saying, you know, it's all about the Crimean, uh, the Crimean uh, Navy base in the, you know, Crimea, the uh, geostrategic importance. But it still misses a lot. And here's what it misses. I'll say this. It ain't about Russia It ain't about China. It's about the U.S. using its position, I mean, losing its position as a unipolar power. And now it's at war with everybody. Russia, China, Germany, Turkey, uh, Iran. It is at war with modernity as the world has already shifted to a unipolar world. The neocons are reaching out like crazy people in all directions. Your thoughts, Mark?
4: Yeah, I mean, the responsible statescraft has a lot of good pieces and then it has a few stinkers. I
0: think
4: <laughs> this probably uh, I mean, it's a lot of geopolitical reductionism. Uh, to bring everything down to the Crimea in the geopolitical terms of Russia needing a um, uh, a, a naval base that a, has access uh, from there to the Black Sea and from the Black Sea to the Atlantic, um, I, I I think that weighs a little too much on the geopolitical reductionism. Um, I, I think it. Uh, Discounts too much the role that the U.S. played in instigating this conflict with their open support and no small degree of orchestration for the putsch which overthrew the last legitimate democratically elected government of Ukraine back in 2014. It also, you know, it really avoids the discussion that the major, the vast, vast majority of the Crimean people were talking 95 percent, um, you know—across Ethnic lines, not only just the Russian ethnic uh, majority, but the Ukrainians and the Tatars as well. Um, uh, they didn't want to be a part of Ukraine after the government that they overwhelmingly voted to elect was overthrown. Um, They didn't want any part of what follows after that. Why should they when when, you know, obviously the constitutional order was shredded, the rules of the game, as it were, Um, uh, they, uh, you know, find their their values, their political interests much better um, respected in Russia. And the piece really doesn't discuss at all uh, the attitudes of the people of Crimea, um, and how the impossibility of them returning, uh, to, um, uh, rule by the regime in Kiev, unless some type of mass political ethnic cleansing and genocide was carried out. I mean, it would take, I mean, the, Let's be frank. The Kiev regime alone does not does not have the military force to take Crimea. I, if all of the NATO powers kind of uh, returned to the 1850s Crimean War and uh, you know it was some major war to to uh, take Crimea away from Russia, well th- maybe then they could genocide away most of the population of the Crimea in order to do so. But it would probably That would probably fall into a nuclear war before that ever happens. So I I find the whole scenario very unlikely. Any talk of Crimea returning to Ukraine, you know, uh, either by force or political measures as, as simply not relating to the reality of the Crimean people that I know intimately on the ground. One
2: of the statements in this piece that gives me the indication that it is a stinker is that it gives some historic context of Crimea as a vital strategic possession. And it, goes again, gives some historics from Russia, the Russian Empire forward. Then it says, if Putin wants to restore Russia to its status as a leading European power, something that it achieved under Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, then he needs Crimea. This, to me, is, is a lot of the trope we've been hearing about Putin wanting to restore the Soviet Union and all of this kinds of stuff. Have you heard him say anything to that effect? Because it sounds eerily reminiscent to all this discussion about China invading Taiwan, and I haven't heard anything from China saying they want to invade Taiwan.
0: We all got one minute, Mark.
4: Yeah, no, I mean China makes clear that they wanted a, a, a you know peaceful reunification of of you know uh Taiwan, which is part of China with the rest of China. Um and when it comes to, you know, uh, the, the conflict in Ukraine, it was Russia that was pushing the Minsk Accords to make the regime that Thank seized you. power in Kiev politically reconcile with the Donbass. Uh, so um, in both uh, cases, it, it is not the U.S. Uh, seeking the, uh, the, the peaceful solution to these conflicts, but actually trying to exacerbate them, to use them as splinters and wedges and and combat platforms Against uh, both Russia and
0: China. Mark Slobod is a Moscow based international relations security analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell is taking heat for his overtly racist comment that Europe is a beautiful garden surrounded by a barbaric jungle that must be tamed. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Gerald Horn, professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian and researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
0: EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell says Europe is a superior garden and beacon that must civilize the violent jungle in the rest of the world. You know, uh, Dr. Horn, when I uh, a, a while back when I saw the comments about the Ukrainian refugees being blonde haired, blue eyed people. And of course, those uh, Muslims and brown people from Africa that must be cast aside to make room for them, I had a feeling we were moving in this direction. Dr. Horn.
3: Well, Actually, I have a parallel thought, which is that I think that this EU official uh, probably needs some sort of psychological intervention. Uh, That is to say, I think that he may be suffering from some advanced form of Alzheimer's. And given the fact that the United States, speaking of the Food and Drug Administration, has just authorized a new treatment for Alzheimer's, Uh, He may want to get on the phone to his peer at the State Department. But as you know, since this is the United States, uh, this new miracle drug for Alzheimer's is in the five figures. So he may need to get a subsidy from his government. But seriously, uh, this is the kind of outrage that has made it difficult for the European Union and its North Atlantic master in Washington to rally support in the, quote, jungle, unquote, that is to save the rest of the world outside of the North Atlantic community. Uh, just to give Mr. Burrell a brief history lesson, uh, he may recall that it was his own Spain that sponsored the freebooter and pirate Christopher Columbus, who embarked on a policy of genocide and thievery and marauding that brought back Uh, tons of wealth that was then used to build and fortify this so-called garden today that he's boasting about. But uh, listeners should not be alarmed, because that garden that he's boasting about, I'm afraid to say, is on its last legs. Uh, The commentary is rampant that the European Union which includes Spain, is headed over the cliff because of its harebrained policies with regard to the Ukraine, which has the prospect of having many Europeans freezing in the dark within the next few weeks with the European economy uh, headed towards uh, what is not called emerging market status, but submerging market status. In other words, they'll be underwater perhaps literally, certainly figuratively. So once again, I think that what Mr. Burrell did was to betray the hysteria that's afflicting the animal brain of some of these unelected leaders in Brussels who purport to lead the European Union, uh, which is no more than a puppet controlled by the puppet master on Wall Street and in Washington. Talk a
2: little bit about what I see here as a consistency of thought between what Burrell has articulated and the white supremacist nature of that, along with people like Representative Stephen King, former congressman from Iowa, who said that you you can't restore your civilization with somebody else's babies you've got Donald Trump talking about s-hole countries uh, and saying that you know Mexicans are coming across the border and they're rapists and thieves and i mean these things get articulated uh Tom Tancredo saying we want our country back as though people of color have stolen america um th- there's a there's a to me a consistency in mindset here. It's one thing if it's if it's 1965, but here we are in, in 2022 and we're still dealing with the same racists.
3: You are correct. It is 2022 and certainly there is a through line that connects Mr. Burrell to Tancredo, to Trump at all. But I mentioned 2022 because what this comment today reflects as a certain kind of hyper-nervousness, a certain kind of hysteria about what the future holds, what the future portends. That is to say, we're not talking about a confident Europe. We're not talking even about a post-1945 Europe, where the United States, through the Marshall Plan, felt that in order to prevent Communist Party incursions— In places like Western Europe, that living standards, particularly of the middle class heading upward, needed to be raised. But now the worm has turned. And because of Washington's policy, the living standards of the European Union are headed downward. They're heading south with no end in sight. And I think that that is generating hysteria which makes 2022 uh, in many ways unlike 1945 and 1965, and that hysteria leads Mr. Burrell to rip off his mask and to bare his fangs and to show his sharpened, filed teeth that make him and his policies so repugnant and ugly.
0: Mint Press News: The Other Russia-West War. Why some African countries are abandoning Paris and joining Moscow. You know, I recently saw um, the Haitians had um, some Russian flags, and they were asking for Russia and China to veto a UN sanction. We see we're starting to see Russian flags show up in Nigeria. We're seeing the Africans are not buying into the rules-based order, and particularly they're angry at Paris. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn?
3: Well, I'm glad you mentioned France, because France is really in a very difficult position, speaking of President Macron in particular. On the one hand, he's being invited to the first state dinner at the White House, hosted by Joseph R. Biden. You would think that this would reflect positive relations with Washington. But at the same time, Washington is highly upset with Mr. Macron, because of his knocking together this so-called European political community, which did not invite the United States to its opening meeting a few days ago. And at the same time, Washington has shown consistently that it's willing to truck with neo-fascist parties. That's the import of the overthrow of the socialist Salvador Allende in Chile in 1973 and its replacement by a fascist dictatorship. And Mr. Macron should realize that being invited to this state dinner, which seems like an honor uh, in mafioso terms, which is the way we should describe U.S. leaders nowadays, it may be the equivalent of a kiss of death. Uh, that is to say, uh, they might feed him a nice meal before sending him packing back to France to face uh, more turmoil, because as we speak, he's also be challenged by the mouth. There is a distinct possibility that a general strike will be announced in France this week as a result of deteriorating living standards, much of which has been brought on by Mr. Macron siding with NATO, which he once had called brain dead, concerning their escapade in Ukraine. So France is getting it from all sides. Uh, you see that there are erstwhile neo-colonies in places like Burkina Faso and Mali and West Africa are also uh, singing an anti-French tune. Uh, I'm happy to see that in in Haiti, there is a similar uh, ditty uh, being chanted. But this should not be surprising because once again, what it reflects from 30,000 feet is a general crisis Of the North Atlantic community that is hitting in the first instance in its weakest limb, speaking of Western Europe, and the hysteria reflected in the remarks by Mr. Burrell is just one more bit of evidence in that regard. And following
2: along a similar line, Burkina Faso: Does the coup have anti-French or pro-Russian undertones? The coup supporters brandished Russian flags, attacked the French embassy, and made their positions known on social media. And to Garland's point, in Haiti, they're waving uh, Russia, Russian and Chinese flags. Uh, it, it's unraveling a lot faster than I think a lot of people projected.
3: It it certainly is, and that brings us to the hysteria concerning China, uh, which is reaching stratospheric ranges. Uh, You see this with the reportage, if I can use that term, concerning the party congress unfolding as we speak. You see this with regard to the Wall Street Journal article yesterday that reported on the front page that those who carry U.S. passports who work for high-tech firms in China are mm-hmm. either going to have to change their nationality, turn in their U.S. passport, or re- or return home. They can no longer work for Chinese high-tech firms. This is part of this new Cold War, which inevitably will end in tears. And I think that what's happening is that many wiser souls in the international community have made a determination that these moves are moves of desperation. Uh, That's the import of the Saudis basically turning their back on Mr. Biden and deciding to cut oil supply, which Mr. Biden Biden has promised will bring consequences, his term, not mine, to the Saudis. Uh, That's the import of uh, Turkey or Turkey, which has just brokered a gas deal uh, with Russia, whereby Turkey will become a hub for Russian gas that can then be, I guess, sanitized before it's shipped onward to Western <laughs> Europe. Uh, Turkey also is the key to making sure that fewer migrants uh, enter uh, Western European territory. All of that has led one commentator to suggest that actually the master of the European Union might not be in Washington, it might be in Ankara. Uh, this is the sad state. Into which some of these North Atlantic countries have sunk. And one of the reasons being that they follow like lapdogs, their master in Washington and on Wall Street.
0: Uh, yes, and I think they follow them down a very, very dark road, and they're not going to like what's on the end of it. And we're going to find that, that that out, I think, Dr. Horn, within a few months. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, researcher. Search for him on YouTube. Dr. Horn's on YouTube all the time. A lot of great, um, a lot of great stuff on there. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. NATO has set its sights on rebuilding Ukraine's infrastructure. Also, peace activists are demanding an end to the F-35 program. And there's plenty more to talk about with Nick Davies. Nick is a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq. Nick, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
5: Yes, and also the author of war in Ukraine making sense of a senseless conflict, which will be out uh, virtually any day now. Uh, my book with Medea Benjamin.
0: Let us know. We'll have to have you on to talk about it as soon as it's available. And
5: absolutely. Be happy to.
0: Let's start here. DefenseNews.com. Lawmakers seek emergency powers for Pentagon's Ukraine war contracting. Bipartisan legislation introduced in the Senate would grant the the Pentagon wartime procurement powers, allowing it to buy massive amounts... Of high priority munitions using multi-year contracts. Well, well, well. At a time, well, you know, it's not like that. We've got you know economic problems and people are like homeless and starving in the street. Nick.
5: (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, we do. (laughs) As you, as as I'm sure many of your listeners are well aware, this is this is incredible. I mean, it's it's just one, yeah, one one rule for. uh, the military industrial complex and a completely different one for the rest of us. Um, yeah, there was a surprising thing to me in, in this article, a surprising point, which is that all this, this money that, um, on paper has been spent to, um, uh, flood Ukraine with, with, uh, dangerous weapons. um, <clears throat> In fact, only less than 3 billion has so far been spent to replenish US stockpiles and uh and um and replace the the weapons that have been sent to Ukraine. And so really there's 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 a sort of uh um just a flood of spending coming uh, on these you know on these weapons to replenish the U.S. stockpiles, basically, um, and but the the quantities of weapons that the Pentagon is now trying to buy are, in fact, out of all proportion to what has actually been sent to Ukraine. Um, they are talking about. Uh, building up stockpiles that that one analyst described as building stockpiles for a major ground war and incidentally added that this has nothing to do with China, because, as he said, for China, we'd have a very different list. But this this list uh, justified I'm sure in the minds of many lawmakers and I'm sure in the way it will be sold to the public as if this is all weapons for Ukraine the quantities are completely out of proportion they have only sent 20 HIMARS uh, rocket systems to Ukraine and yet the Pentagon now, now wants to buy 700 of them Um on the 155-millimeter uh that they have sent 142 of to Ukraine, they want to buy 1,000. And on the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles uh, that they have sent 1,400 of to Ukraine, they want to buy 20,000. So, yes, building stockpiles for a major ground war, one really has to ask. You know what major ground war are they stocking up for? And of course, even if there isn't a major ground war, this is just a massive, massive bonanza uh, uh, for all the manufacturers of all all these 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 horrible lethal weapons. And um, <clears throat> but the you know, the the other aspect of that. Is well? Are they preparing to fight a major ground war? And in fact, there's an article in Foreign Policy that is, you know, will scare you to death because, frankly, they are saying that through the war in Ukraine, they basically have to. They're saying the only way to um, accomplish the U.S. goals in Ukraine is basically to hand uh, Vladimir Putin a catastrophic defeat. And as we have talked about before, and as Medea and I have written about, the um, the Russian nuclear doctrine, in, in fact, makes that impossible. If, in fact... If in fact the US were to succeed at what it now claims to be or what or what you know military think tanks are saying is now the goal and to, to, they were to decisively defeat Russia. Uh, Russia would, in fact, use nuclear weapons before it would allow that to happen. So, uh, really, one has to look at these quantities of weapons and say, what are what are they? What are these guys planning? You know, is this for a U.S. invasion of Ukraine or is it for a U.S. invasion of Russia? Uh, yeah, seven hundred. HIMARS Mars rocket systems, one thousand one hundred and fifty-five millimeter howitzers, and and these are new equipment on top of everything that 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 the U.S. military already possesses, which we have been spending close to a trillion dollars a year on. Um, this this this, this just, I mean, frankly, it, you know, it just seems like these guys have gone off the deep end.
2: Well, I, I think there are there are a couple of signals one can draw from this. Uh to your point, what who are they planning to fight? Where are they planning to fight? And when are they planning to fight? That's one thing based upon the quantities that you're talking about. But one of the things that jumps out at me is it says as drafted, it would let the Pentagon lock in purchases. Of these munitions, which means whether we fight or not, the money is going to be allocated and spent. These things are going to be purchased, and if they may just wind up sitting in a warehouse. But Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, BAE, Bay Systems, and uh, Kongsberg, they're going to get their money, which goes back to one of the points that we were saying about this at the very out- outset. This is a boondoggle for the military industrial complex. The other question is, how does this action, how is this action perceived around the world? Because I would only assume that President Xi in China and Putin in Russia will look at this and say, if this isn't an act of war, you are surely preparing for war, which means we have to prepare to respond absolutely
5: absolutely i mean i mean if i was sitting in the the russian uh, general staff here uh reading this and, and and i'm sure they do read defense news um <laughs> uh, i i mean how, how 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 can we possibly expect them to respond to that other than by uh you know quietly or noisily um putting their uh st- nuclear strategic forces on uh at a, at a
2: state of 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 extreme readiness um and, and can I, can I add uh, one more thing Garland, quickly sure uh and and and, and that is uh, uh nick uh, what last tuesday it was reported that secretary lavrov said hey we want to talk to you all about We want to about starting to negotiate the end of this thing. And then Ned Price comes out and says, oh, that's just bluster. That's just posturing. Look at the way that Russia has sent missiles into Kiev. They're not that's all just bluster and foolishness. Well, what is this? I mean, if 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 you you as the State Department claim that Russia's actions contradict they're saying they're ready to talk about peace. What does all of this preparation say to Russia and to China? Well,
5: as I, it, it backs up what Ned Price said and really what you know what what U.S. and and British officials have been have been saying uh, for months. Basically, that the, they refuse to negotiate. They refuse to negotiate exactly. with Russia. Exactly before the war, and and ever since the war began, they they have they have effectively, um, uh, you know, while while Turkey and Israel were mediating peace talks, Boris Johnson went to went to Kiev and told uh, Zelensky, "Stop talking to Putin. He's a war criminal. Concentrate on defeating him. We'll be in it with you for the long run." This is this is. When they talk about being in it for the long run, they are talking about a war that could, will go on for years and that that will completely, utterly destroy Ukraine. Because, I mean, this war is going to—I mean, yes, the war could eventually— Go into Russia, but for the time being, this war is ha- is happening in Ukraine, and every one of the, these weapons, these Mars rockets, these 155 millimeter howitzers, they, I mean, they are all be they are all being used and to be used in Ukraine. It is Ukraine where they are exploding, where they are killing people, and you know, whichever side. Whichever side is firing them, and it, it, it's it, this 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 is a level of weaponry to to reduce entire cities in Ukraine to rubble.
0: Uh, Nick, um, if I if I may, let me add another article in here since we, we're running a little short on time. I want to make sure we, I add this because I think it's appropriate. Common dreams, peace activists, 220-plus groups demand U.S. Cancel, cancel F-35 program. And what's interesting is they don't just talk about the U.S. They say, look, these other countries that are buying F- th- these expensive F-35s for like $140 million each, they too could be looking out for their population. And that's the other part of it, that it is the U.S., we're hurting ourselves and our own people, but you have other countries that can't afford it, that have problems, and they're kind of pushed into to doing the same thing. Your thoughts, Nick?
5: Yeah, well, you know, Medea and I were on Democracy Now! last week, and Juan Gonzalez asked us why there is not a peace movement in uh he had the goal to ask Medea Benjamin why there is not a peace <laughs> movement in the United States, and this is the peace movement in the United States: uh, two two hundred and twenty groups and entities, uh, including Noam Chomsky, including Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, and and you know all sorts of civil society groups um, coming together to actually actually challenge the very basis of 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 you know what what we're talking about here because i mean this this the f35 is at this point a 1.7 trillion dollar weapons program uh Throughout the development of this, this program, people like Pierre Spray, who invented the s 15 you know, were, were writing articles about how, you know, just what a boondoggle and what a waste and what a, you know, uh, and, and that the program was already in a death spiral, as they call it, in procurement land, because as the cost went up, they were ordering fewer of them and as they ordered fewer of them, the cost went up even more. And I mean this uh this this plane is so complicated to fly that uh they had a hard time training pilots to fly it. Um it it is so the the, the coating on the the surface gives it its um stealth uh capabilities you know to hide it from radar, although they it kind of does not actually effectively do that, but that coating is so flammable that if one of these planes simply gets hit by by uh a couple of bullets um the whole thing can go up in flames so effectively it, you know it's it, it, it's uh it's a tin can that that you would not want to be. Uh, and flying in in the middle of a war zone. Wow. Because, you know, you're, you you're uh, <laughs> you, you know, be put, putting the, probably the pilot in more danger than anybody else.
0: You, you're um, smoking. You're smoking at the gas station. E- exactly. Well, we're <laughs> exactly. just about out, we're just about out of time. Ni- time Nick. From what I understand, the only thing that really works well on the uh, F-35 is the ejector seat. And uh, I think that's a good thing. We've been talking <laughs> with a Nick, good Nick Davies. What's the name of your new uh, book again?
5: War in Ukraine making sense of a senseless conflict and uh you can go to or books and uh pre-order the book right now and and, i think you know at this point you'll get it within within a few weeks
0: nick davies peace activist and author you're listening to the critical hour on radio sputnik i'm your host garland nixon with my co-host dr wilmer leon more on the other side stay tuned We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden has run out of tricks to control OPEC states. Also, a break in U.S.-Saudi relations could further undermine U.S. influence in the Middle East, and Australia no longer recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Joining us now to discuss these stories and more, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: Middle East Eye says, as much as the Saudi OPEC move was driven by energy price stabilization and Russian accommodation, it was a demonstration of power against a weakened U.S. president. You know, uh, Leith, I would argue against a weakened U.S. empire. Your thoughts?
6: Oh, definitely. I mean, the American empire is uh, retreating on a global scale. Uh, we can see the influence uh, you know, shrinking even in East Europe as the as the war in Ukraine continues and more countries around that uh, start worrying about the effects of the sanctions and war on their economies, uh, as we see Hungary, Hungary and others standing up and uh, speaking against the United States and European Union policies. Similarly, here in the Gulf region, uh, the Saudi regime has been a cornerstone of Anglo imperialism since the uh, end of World War One, World War Two, and uh, without the Saud uh, family uh, being uh, in alliance with the United States, much of the Gulf countries also will exit that relationship. Uh, your listeners must understand that the the uh, royal family in Bahrain is not actually from Bahrain. It is from Najd. It's uh, it's uh, the heartlands of uh, Arabia. It is part of the family of the Saud family, just a branch of it. Similarly, in Qatar, similarly, in the Emirates, these were branches of the Saud family that the British brought in to rule those areas. And of course, we may see some once in a while a spat between Qatar. And the Emirates and the Saudis over who within those branches of the extended Saud family has a bigger say but ultimately Saudi uh, is the largest country it has the most finances and most population and it will drag the rest of the Gulf uh, coalition or uh, you know uh, into a sphere and a weakened United States relationship with Saudi Arabia means the whole Gulf is going to uh, exit the uh, hegemony of the United States.
2: This piece says that the Biden administration has accused the Saudis of aiding Russia by increasing its oil profits. But to me, this demonstrates that the United States either doesn't understand that Russia is a part of OPEC plus one, which is, I think, what makes it plus one. So it's not it, it, it it's not that that the Saudis have the ability to just dictate the output of the organization for, for one thing. And then it also demonstrates to me that the United States thinks that it just has the leverage and it has the the power as the hegemon once or once upon a time. And so it, it can't just dictate this stuff
6: anymore. Yes and no, because uh, look, uh, no matter how much the Saudis make money, that money uh, has been always forced to be uh, been deposited in Western banks. That uh, this is actually when we talk about the petrol dollar. What we mean is the American economy is dependent on Gulf countries forcefully uh, putting their money in Western banks. In fact. Uh, Some of your listeners may remember the oil crisis in the 1970s when the embargo was put on the West for supporting um, uh, the Zionist uh, colony against uh, the Arab states. You know, that money that was made from that uh, oil crisis was actually uh, the result of it was uh, the creation of a huge bubble of money like in Citibank and other banks in the early 80s that had billions and trillions of dollars of Gulf money uh, uh, that, uh, you know, suddenly was in the economy in the West and they were handing out uh, loans to African and Asian and Latin American countries from this money, these banks. And that is actually the origin of the third world debts, the money of the Gulf that supposedly was a punishment to the West. Uh, solidified the imperial reach in, in much of the world after in the 80s. And here it's the same situation. It may look like the Saudis are going to make a lot of money, but it's really American and British banks that are going to make a lot of money.
0: Australia no longer recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Again, Middle East Eye says labor government reverses recognition announced by former prime minister in 2018, which was in defiance of international law. Your thoughts, late.
6: Well, this is a 180 uh, shift. I wonder how uh, this is uh, happening right now. We can see clearly part of it is there is a global consensus in humanity, and all organizations working on human rights and uh, uh, and so civil societies and unions and churches and so forth. Everybody agrees that there is an apartheid uh, in. Palestine. And uh, when you say apartheid, it means that there is one group that is has supremacy over another. And in this situation, it's Jewish supremacy. Uh, and uh, that's where the populace in the world is, uh, even in Western countries, uh, you know, understand that. And the more and more governments, like, let's say, Canada, uh, the UK, the US, and others, uh, you know, stand in in defiance of truth, factual truth that everybody can see visibly in their own eye without any story, just looking at the images from Palestine, you know that there is an apartheid and a supremacist uh, situation. Um, and, you know, clearly Australia is uh, has a huge Arab population. Maybe the shifts are already happening as, as influence of those populations, second and third uh, generation, becomes more apparent uh, I don't know how long this is going to last. Looking at how Canada is becoming more and more openly Zionist, uh, you know, this is you know a situation that is uh, still up in the air. So it's not a it's not a big win, but it's a definitely a 180 uh, change on uh, this uh, very important issue of what is Jerusalem, whose capital is it?
2: Foreign Minister, Foreign Affairs Minister Penny Wong said, "I regret." that Mr. Morrison's decision to play politics resulted in Australia's shifting position. And I distress these shifts have caused too many people in the Australian community who care deeply about this issue. Um, and then uh, Israel's foreign minister says, Jerusalem has been the capital of the Jewish people for 3,000 years. Uh, can you help me with some of that historical
6: Uh, Reconciliation? I mean, look, the Zionists uh, manufacture history, manufacture uh, identity. That's what it is, you know, trying to manufacture a false identity uh, around the state of Israel and enforcing it on Judaism, perverting Judaism to to, uh, justify supremacist and colonialist and uh, uh, genocidal tendencies uh, is um, laughable if it wasn't tragic in terms of its results. Um, You know, there is no such thing as Jewish people, as there is no such thing as Christian peoplehood or Muslim peoplehood. There is people that are Germanic, Slavic, Latin, Uh, Anglo, Arab, so forth, that have language and culture, and they follow different religions. There is people who are uh, Jewish and Slavic, Jewish and Arab, Jewish and Amazigh. There is no peoplehood around religion. Um, And what they are trying to do, these Zionists, with uh, continuing to fabricate uh, history, I mean, like, you know, they want to usurp Judaism. They want to usurp Christianity. They want to usurp Islam from the indigenous Arab and proto-Arab peoples that birthed these religions and gifted them to the world, uh, religions of unity and uh, or unification of humanity. And then what has the Europeans, including Jewish Europeans, did with those religions is pervert them and make them religions of genocide as we saw in the americas in the name of christianity and now in palestine in the name of uh judaism and what happened in syria and iraq in the name of islam all perversions of the abrahamic uh religions that that were gifted by the uh, proto-arab peoples to the world um and and being created in image of uh, supremacist whiteness.
0: Times of Israel reports some U.S. military aid to Egypt blocked after senators' human rights objections. You see that. But when it goes down, when you look down, you find out that it's a billion dollars that the U.S. gives to the Egyptian government ostensibly for aid each year. But they only cut $75 million off. So it's really symbolic. But anyway, you're, the U.S. gives more than a billion each year. So they cut a symbolic $75 million off ostensibly for human rights. um human rights uh, violations. And when you look at what's going on with Israel and the Palestinians, it's kind of hard to get a grip on the U.S. really being concerned about human rights. Your thoughts, Late?
6: Oh, yeah. And this comes after Egypt took multiple, made multiple statements in the last uh, week since uh, OPEC uh, raised uh, the prices of oil. Uh, Egypt came out multiple times. The, the various officials of the government, in support of the Saudi government, um, you know, condemning uh, the language that has been used by by Biden and the U.S. government. That that was which was surprising, but that tells you a lot, of course, about how much actual money that the Saudis are investing in the um, and the Emiratis are investing in the regime of uh, Sisi. Um, you know the president of uh, Egypt currently. Most of this money that the Americans send is "quote unquote" military aid, but you know Egypt hasn't been at war with anybody since 1973 and the signing of the uh, shameful peace treaty with uh, with the Zionist colony, and therefore all actual money that goes uh, supposedly goes to Egypt from the United States is cycled through uh, contracts for the war machine of the United States, and much of that money just ends up in the pockets of Egyptian officials. Egypt's army, in terms of its uh, readiness and the equipment that it has and so forth, is uh, is a joke uh, for a country that's 100 million. If you compare it to Iran, which is practically the same population size and the same territory size, the advancements of Iranian military uh, are a huge uh, example of what could be done if there isn't a a weak uh, collaborationist government in, in Egypt.
2: The United States tries to use this language as some type of moral authority based upon a position on human rights, but the debate that the Uh, government is engaged in is is really just hyperbole. You've got Patrick Leahy urging the give the money to scholarships to Egyptian students or as military aid to the Ukraine, as though military aid to the Ukraine is better than aid to Egypt. The so-called debate is almost laughable.
6: Yeah, I mean, look, the, the Saudis are getting attacked uh, for their oil uh, increase in the prices, but they went and, uh, you know, gave a gift of hundreds of millions of dollars to Ukraine this week. Uh, so you have to wonder, I mean, like, what is it, what is it that the United States wants from these vessels, um, you know, colonies and, and provinces of the empire? Uh, do, they don't want them to even have any leeway in their possibility to, let's uh, say, you know, b- be respectful in front of their own population. Uh, so I- anything but total uh, subservience to America an open, uh, you know, glad subservience to the United States is punished, as we see right now more and more.
0: Laith Maruf is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.K. faces turmoil as the majority of their economic problems stem from Russia's sanctions blowback. Also, Liz Truss is in serious trouble as her claim to power grows more tenuous by the hour, and there are massive protests throughout Europe. Joining us now to discuss these these issues and more, we have Regis Tremblay. Regis is a movie-making kind of guy. He's an American citizen living in Crimea. Regis, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
7: Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me.
0: And I called you a movie-making kind of guy, but I think that's a, uh, a, a rough way of saying, if you can just b- real briefly tell people about your background in, in film.
7: Well, uh, I started doing video, gosh, I don't know, at least a dozen years ago. I've been very involved in uh, photography and taught photojournalism in a high school uh, back in the 70s. When video became cheaper and smaller, uh, I knew that that's where I had to go because it's the most powerful communication tool known to the to the human race. And so I just started uh, making video videos about local activists. Um, uh, the, uh, the Occupy movement was just beginning in Portland, Maine, and I started doing that. And then, boom, from there, I found myself in uh, South Korea to make a film, The Ghost of Jeju. Then it was to Russia to finish a film, 30 Seconds to Midnight. And I've had over 550 videos and films on my now-deleted YouTube channel.
0: <laughs> well, we need you in France, Belgium, and Mo- Mo- Moldova because apparently there's not a lot of media people that can figure out that they have a massive protest. Um, people are protesting all over the place in Europe, uh, protesting against the the prices. And now we're starting to see they want out of NATO. They want to end this Ukraine war. What are you hearing? You're a lot closer to to that uh, action than we are, uh, Regis Tremblay.
7: Well, uh, we're hearing all of that, uh, of course. Uh, A lot of coverage has has been given to uh, the problems in the UK. You know, Boris Johnson commanded a lot of attention. Uh, And then this Liz Trust, uh, she's several members of her own party are calling for her to resign already because of the huge blunder she made about uh, her financial plan, which she retracted. And there's more bad news coming out of the UK. Um, They're looking at possibly a depression, they're saying recession, prices are going out of sight. It's really funny, Uh, pubs and chain pubs across the UK have had to close, Uh, they can't afford to stay open. So the UK is in, in deep trouble. Now you talked about the national strike in France, wow. Now. The French know how to do it. Uh, The French French have had a lot of experience that over the years, and they've been at it now for quite a long time, the yellow shirts and all of that when they were protesting against the government. The word is that Macron might even be in trouble. And then on top of this change in government in the UK, Italy had a change in government, and the EU is threatening. Uh, this new government, if they don't fall in line, it, it's it's amazing what's happening. The same thing is happening in, Austro- in, in Austria, where there's been protests, people have rising up against the government. Austria has refused to train Ukrainian troops, breaking ranks with NATO. In Germany, oh my goodness, we get news about Germany. Uh, every single day and multiple times a day, record number of bankruptcies of companies, industries shutting down because they can't afford their energy bills. Um, The retail stores, I just read this today, are closing because people don't have the money to buy. They've lost their jobs. Germany appears to be one of the hardest hit countries in all of Europe. And the big question people are raising uh, Wilmer and Garland, has Germany been targeted, not by Russia, by Big Brother? By the US. So that's the view from here, the way I see it.
2: You know, Regis, uh, uh, in this article, a massive protest in Europe against rising living costs, They following on to the points that you just made, there was a rally in Paris on Sunday, hundred and forty thousand people attended. police expected 30,000 to attend. Uh, this and this is happening in Belgium. This is happening all over and we've been talking about on this show asking the question when the when the ruling elite wind up belly button to belly button with those that are being ruled and those who are ruled are hungry and cold. And they don't have jobs. This is going to, and you talked about Macron being in trouble. I think there are a lot of governments that are going to be not in trouble, toppled when they can't eat and they can't get any heat. They can't take a warm a warm bath or a hot shower. A lot of folks in January and February are going to be at their
7: wits' ends. Uh. I don't have anything to add to that, except uh, I, I that I think I'll put it in a different way. I think we're looking at uh, the the crash of the um, Western economies, United States and its Western collective Western allies. Uh, when that happens, uh, yeah, the pitchforks are going to come out, and they're going to be belly button to belly button, as you said, with all of those unelected elites that rule them.
2: And here's the thing. Here, just, here's the other thing. They brought it on themselves. That's that's really, I think, what's going to push people over the edge is it didn't have to be this way. It's not a natural catastrophe that exposed all of this. It was greed and imperialism. And that, I think, is what's going to put take this to the point of no return. Go ahead,
0: Garland. Uh, Liz Truss's new chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, who on Monday ditched further tax cuts introduced by his predecessor, Kwasi predecessor Kwarteng in his unpopular mini budget, called on Tory critics to give the prime minister a chance and ruled out the notion that she had any ambition, he had any ambition to succeed her. Here's the thing, Regis. I don't even blame Liz Truss. What was she supposed to do? The reality? Yes, she's one of them. It doesn't matter who you put in the 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 policies that they are instituting will wipe out the entire U.K. budget. And we can laugh and blame Liz Truss. They can change her. They could bring back Winston Churchill from uh, uh, it doesn't matter. These policies seem designed to destroy the UK, uh, 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 excuse me, the, the European um, economy. Regis.
2: And one thing quickly, uh, Garland, to that, to that point, they're neoliberal
7: policies. They're following American neoliberalism. Regis. Well, I, I agree with both of you. Uh, these people, those who are elected, uh, they don't get there because the people vote them in. If you look across the board, all of them are talking about the same neoliberal lines. All of them, they repeat the same things over and over and over again. Underlying it all, the EU, those unelected leaders, and the ministers of foreign affairs in several countries, and especially Germany, continuing to say Russia, 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 Russia when Russia had nothing to do with it. Russia's been begging them to turn the tap, let the gas flow. Russia's been offering this all along. And and right now, I agree with both of you. I think the people, because they're going to starve, they're beginning to starve, they're going to freeze this winter. There's no immediate hope for a change of course. And they will overthrow these unelected and elected leaders, because they know and they're all saying that the governments are not serving their needs. Well, uh, uh,
0: you know, here's the thing, too, Regis. I'm, I'm looking at an article. Brits told to prepare for blackouts on a really cold evening. The head of the national evenings of the National Grid has warned that a worst-case scenario might see power cuts in January and February. Here's the thing the people in the in, in the western world had a higher standard of living if this is a poor country you don't have far, as hard as hard as 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 far to fall the people in the western country are used to their cell phones and uh, going to the pub and watching the game and all the fun things and they will be relegated to abject poverty this is a whole different animal i think people would say well will this be the myanmar where they want i think it'll be far worse than myanmar that we could see the actual breakdown of social cohesion in some of these countries. What do you think, Regis?
2: And and Garland, what what did we talk about yesterday? In in Germany, closing hospitals. Why? Because the hospitals can't afford to pay their energy bills. Regis.
7: Well, you guys are on top of it. Uh, And and I'll add one more thing. Uh, As you probably know, and we didn't talk about Ukraine, but Russia has been nonstop Shelling and sending precision guided missiles into Kiev, Lvov, and other cities. Zelensky today publicly warned the Ukrainian people, told them that 30% of their electrical grid was destroyed, many are without water. He, he told them to expect blackouts, rolling blackouts, and to prepare for a very, very tough winter. And so, even the Ukraine that's been benefiting from all of this money and weapons from NATO and the EU, uh, because of these ridiculous policies, this, this extreme Russophobia, uh, they are now suffering because of what they have done, bad choices, bad political decisions.
2: Well, what, what do they say? You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Uh, talk a little bit, a, a little bit more about the shelling, and because you also have Zelensky calling the uh, the Russian shelling terrorism, and you and and with the with the with the targeting of the electric grid, he's calling that uh, terrorism, and the United States says when when Lavrov says, well, we're willing to sit down and talk. And then Ed, Ned Price comes out and says, oh, that's just posturing. Look, they're still shelling Kiev. Well, it is a war, and that's kind of what you do until somebody calls a stop to it.
7: Yeah, they, I, I was laughing when you said Zelensky's calling it terrorism. Uh, wh- what do they call it when they they have that truck blown up on the <laughs> Crimean Bridge? Exactly. Uh, you know, what, what do they call it when somebody blew up the Nord Stream pipelines? Um, what do they call it? When Ukraine, Ukraine has constantly been shelling the nuclear power plant in Zaporozhye, what do they call it, for eight years of Ukraine shelling the Donbas with over 35,000 deaths, many of them children, and, and somewhere to 50,000 people wounded and some for life. If that isn't terrorism, geez, that's genocide. And so I have to laugh when I hear Ukraine now, who just a week ago were boasting they pushed Russia back that Russia's losing. Well, what's not being reported is Russia's not losing. Russia is winning convincingly, and the 300,000 extra troops will be hitting the front within a week or two or three. When that happens, this game is over, my friends.
0: Regis Trimble is an American citizen living in Crimea. Thank you very much, Regis. Certainly appreciate taking time out of your busy day to spend time with with us here in Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Israel has authorized the use of military drones to attack and kill Palestinians in the West Bank. Joining us to discuss this story, we have Professor Marjorie Cohn. Professor Cohn is a professor of law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, California, and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Professor Cohn, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
8: Thanks for having me.
0: Go to consortiumnews.com and the article is Israel authorizes military to kill Palestinians with drones in the West Bank. Israel's anti-terrorism justification abridges international law, writes Marjorie Cohn. The government has no right of self-defense against the people whose land it occupies. Professor Cohn, your thoughts.
8: Well, this is a significant escalation in Israel's violence against the Palestinians. Um, Since 2008, they have been killing Palestinians in Gaza with drones. They've been using fire gas bombs and live rounds in occupied uh, Jerusalem. They've been using drones for surveillance in the occupied West Bank. But this is the first time that armed drones will be used in the West Bank. And drones, uh, make up 80% of the total flight hours in the Israeli Air Force. Israel justifies targeting Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Um, they call them terrorists and they say we need drones for counter-terrorism, uh, operations. If armed gunmen, uh, are thought to pose an imminent threat to Israeli troops, but as you said, um, Israel has no right of self-defense against the people whose land it occupies under the Fourth Geneva Convention. Um, the Occupying power, which is Israel, has a legal duty to protect the people under its occupation. And so, as an occupying power, Israel cannot lawfully use military force against the occupied Palestinian people. Moreover, under international law, the Palestinians have a lawful right to resist Israel's occupation of their lands, including through armed struggle. And in 1982, the UN General Assembly, which is the Democratic body, all of the countries of the U.N., reaffirmed the legitimacy of the struggle of peoples for independence, territorial integrity, national unity, and liberation from colonial and foreign domination and foreign occupation by all available means, including armed struggle
2: in your book uh, drones and targeted killing legal moral and geopolitical issues you you edited this 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 volume uh your introduction a fighting a fighting new way of war one of the things uh, president obama talked about drones in a very antiseptic manner as though this was a very uh, surgical way of engaging in warfare, and I think that's part of the the narrative that the Zionist government is is trying to portray here, and it is anything but that.
8: Yes, it's true, um, and it, you know I have seen films, I have seen dramatic reenaction reenactments of dr- so-called drone pilots who put their uh, their uniforms on and go to a trailer and manipulate uh, a a drone bomb, like a video game. um, And you can see coming into the, uh, the, the, picture, um, you know, the person who they're aiming at. And then between the time that they push the button and the time that the bomb is deployed from the drone, uh, it takes 10 seconds. And in that 10 seconds, people walk into that, uh, that firing area, women, children, innocent people. And so this so-called surgical pre- precision, assuming, of course, that they are allowed in the first place to target people with drones, that's illegal assassination and extrajudicial Killing, unless they're in the midst of a of a war, which this is not the case here, um, is is illegal. Um, and, uh, but the collateral damage, so-called collateral damage is, uh, is outrageous. And it took a long time for the Obama administration, uh, that was using drones in seven different countries to, um, talk about how many civilians were being killed. There's tremendous civilian damage and, uh, and killing from these drones. They're not at all the surgical strikes that, uh, that they claim to be.
0: In your article, you talk about Shireen Abu Akleh and her family's complaint to the International Criminal Court. If you could talk about that case and why you felt in the context of this particular article that it was important to include that.
8: Well, um, in May, uh, Shireen Abu Akleh, who was a Palestinian-American journalist and beloved um, by people in the Arab world, she was known as the Voice of Palestine. She reported for Al Jazeera for 25 years, and she was reporting on an illegal Israeli occupation force's mass arrest in the occupied West Bank, in the Janine refugee camp when she was assassinated by an Israeli sniper. And uh, that constitutes a war crime. Uh, The International Criminal Court classifies the targeting of war correspondents or journalists who report from war zones or occupied territories uh, by killing or physical assault as a war crime. Um, Israel initially denied that it was an Israeli who shot her. Um, They said, oh, it was a Palestinian. Uh, Later, it's the Israel. Israel said, well, there was a high possibility she was accidentally hit by the Israeli forces. Um, but on September 20th, um, Al Haq, which is a Palestinian human rights organization, and by the way, one of six declared falsely with no evidence to be a terrorist organization and raided uh, by the Israeli forces recently, Al Haq and the London-based research group Forensic Architecture issued a report finding that Israeli forces... repeatedly and deliberately targeted Shireen Akleh with a well-aimed bullet. She was wearing a vest that said press. It was clearly visible to the Israeli occupying forces shooter, and I actually saw um, footage from Al Jazeera that contained a detailed digital reconstruction, which makes it very clear that this uh, sn- Israeli sniper could see who she was. They clearly targeted her. Um, and also, uh, they targeted a journalist uh, for Al Jazeera who was with. Abu Akleh, um, his name was Ali al-Samudi. Um, he was shot by Israeli forces at the same time uh, as, as she was. And the same day that these two groups released their report showing conclusively that um, the Israeli forces targeted these journalists, um, three organizations of journalists, the International Federation of Journalists, the International Center of Justice for Palestinians, and the Palestinian Journalist Syndicate all filed a complaint in the International Criminal Court on behalf of Shireen's family and the journalist who was, who was also shot. And uh, you know, th- there's a pattern here. Um, these six Palestinian human rights groups, which um, were designated terrorist organizations with no evidence—in fact, the CIA <laughs> determined there was no evidence—were um, raided uh, in 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 August, and uh, and they were uh, you know ransacked and and their offices were shut down. And the reason is just like journalists being targeted, um, human rights organizations—they're very prominent human rights organizations. The U.N. works with them uh, regularly, and, and other mainstream human rights groups work with them. Um, but when any group or journalist tells the truth about what's happening um, in Israel, in, in Palestine, what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, in the occupied West Bank, um, in East Jerusalem, etc., they are targeted. And um the the Bush the Bush administration that was a Freudian slip. The <laughs> Biden administration um, enables the illegal occupation of Palestinian lands by Israel, just like all of its predecessors. Um, the U.S. provides Israel with three point eight billion dollars a year in military assistance. Um, the Biden administration refuses to condemn Israel for its illegal terrorist designations and raids on these Palestinian human rights groups or its unlawful assassination of Abu Akhle. And you can bet that the Biden administration is not going to say peep about this news story that got almost no coverage in the corporate media in this country, that Israel is now going to be killing Palestinians with armed drones in the occupied West Bank.
2: Uh, Two things. One, you're talking about the assassination of Shireen uh, Abu Akleh and how journalists are targeted. Well, that sounds an awful lot like what the United States is doing to Julian Assange. And the second point is, or the second question is, there seems to be an escalation in these types of attacks. Is that an indication to you that uh, the Zionist government in Israel is becoming more desperate?
8: Um, To take your second question first... Yes. Um, the, uh, on September the 28th, which is b- about two weeks before um, Israel announced its new intention to use armed drones in the occupied West Bank, um, the Israeli occupying forces killed four Palestinians and injured dozens more during protests in Jenin, which is in the occupied West Bank, and by the way, was also the site of the assassination of Abu Akleh. So yes, I think that um, perhaps the resistance by the Palestinians uh, is getting stronger, and uh, Israel is is escalating its, uh, its illegal um, violence against the Palestinians. And your question about Julian Assange is a good one. Um, actually, I was recently on a program that talked about Shireen Abu Akleh and Julian Assange on the same program. Julian Assange um, is in a prison in London, and the Biden administration is is trying to I extradite him to the United States, where he would face 175 years in prison um, for charges under the Espionage Act for doing what? For revealing evidence of U.S. War crimes in Iraq, in uh, Afghanistan, in Guantanamo Bay, and uh, so you know. And this is a journalist they're targeting, and uh, WikiLeaks. Assange is co-founder of WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks published um, these documents, these classified documents, which were leaked to them by uh, Chelsea Manning, who has a new book out, by the way, and. WikiLeaks did nothing other than what the New York Times, the Washington Post, Der Spiegel, Le Monde um, do, which is to publish classified information. That's what investigative journalists do. And that's why the Obama administration, which indicted more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than all prior presidents combined, convened a secret grand jury to decide whether to indict Julian Assange and decided not to because of what has been co- be, uh, become known as the New York Times problem. Because if they indicted Julian Assange, they would also have to indict um, the, the New York Times, etc. Well, the Trump administration uh, d- had you know, exercised no such forbearance and indicted Julian Assange and is trying to ex- was trying to extradite him when Donald Trump left office. Uh, um, and Biden, uh, instead of doing what, uh, you know, Barack, his buddy, uh, did, which is, you know, he, he's always in, invoking Barack and I did this, Barack and I did that, but he did not um, refuse to indict or, or dismiss, I should say, the charges against Julian Assange or drop the request for extradition the way uh, his buddy Barack probably would have done. He is going full speed ahead. And uh, if Julian Assange is, alt- and this is a, a long struggle, a legal struggle in, uh, in in Britain, if he is ultimately extradited to the United States and tried and convicted under the Espionage Act, that is going to chill investigative journalism, nas- national security journalism, uh, journalists who do what Abu Akhle was doing, and other um, very brave, courageous journalists, which is to tell the truth about Israel's war crimes, about the United States' war crimes. And so we should all be very, very concerned um, about the prosecution and persecution of Julian Assange.
0: Marjorie Cohn is a professor of law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, California, and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. An investigative piece by Alan McLeod at Mint Press News clearly demonstrates that the BBC often acts as a tool for powerful government entities in the UK. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist, syndicated columnist, and you can find all of his work at Rall, R-A-L-L, com. Ted Rawl, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
9: Thank you, Garland. Appreciate it.
0: MintPressNews.com. Alan Macleod, the BBC to NATO pipeline: How the British state broadcaster serves the powerful, and he goes on to say, between 2018 and 2022, the number of Britons saying they trusted its the BBC's coverage dropped from 75 percent to 55 percent. Yet it still remains a giant in media. More than three quarters of the UK public rely on the network as a source. Your thoughts, Ted Rawl.
9: Well, uh, the BBC has a long and, uh, you know, uh, very storied history as a uh, broadcaster that certainly has uh, draped itself in the veneer of a uh, sober, uh, very serious news outlet. And, you know, I I certainly have uh, found it to be uh, useful, especially related to uh, news stories that relate not to the UK or its interests or its former colonies, which, of course, rules out half the world. Um, but, the, uh, but, but I think, um, especially in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, as there's been uh, rising discontent between uh, people who live outside of the uh, London bubble uh, and are, are out in what is effectively Britain's rust belt, these are the people who voted for Brexit, uh, there has been a growing gap between uh, the what uh, p- you know the people and uh, how much they trust you know the Beeb.
2: One of the things that struck me about Alan's uh, conclusion, even though this was this is stated early, or may I say, his premise, he says this investigation will reveal that the BBC has always been consciously used as an arm of the state with the broadcaster openly collaborating with the UK military the intelligence services and NATO all in an effort to shape british and world public opinion and i can remember you know for example when i was in college in the late 70s you know i always thought of the bbc as being one of those seminal sources for honest journalism but here he's saying it has always acted as an agent for the entities that I that I mentioned,
9: yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, look, if uh, if you were looking at a story on the BBC about uh, you know a situation in say Laos where uh, the UK doesn't have uh, very direct interests, uh, you know, it probably would be the way that you and I both thought of it when we were younger. Uh, but you know, it's certainly in Britain itself. Uh, it's been a direct. It always has been a direct executor. Of uh, state propaganda, you know whether for better or for worse. I mean, I can think of, for example, during World War II, it was the BBC that broadcast, uh, you know, exiled uh, French general Charles de Gaulle's uh, coded messages to the Resistance and the Free French uh, in occupied, uh, you know, fr- France. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a state enterprise. That's not journalism. That is a state. That is literally. Um, spying and uh, espionage being uh, broadcast over the airwaves. That's not something that a straight news outlet would ever do for a a government. But the BBC has played that kind of role over and over and over. As the article in Mint Press News notes... Uh, you know the the BBC was uh, you know <laughs> gavel to gavel coverage of Queen Elizabeth's uh, funeral services, which were I think six or seven days long, um, and they had a whole plan for that. I mean, they didn't cover it just like we're a news outlet and this is news and we're going to cover it. Uh, you know this this is all part of the majesty of the Brit- of the British state and uh, and and sort of trying to promulgate that mythos. I mean, let's face it. Uh, You know, funeral services are not news. (laughs) While they were doing that, they were not covering actual news as it was happening in the U.K. and around the world.
0: Here's another thing. They've got a couple of people. Suleiman Radmanish, he worked for BBC World Service, helping to produce content targeting the Afghan population. During the same period, he worked as a video editor for NATO, editing short PsyOx clips. He, he ended his work for both of them when the US and the UK left Afghanistan, they go over to bring another guy, Bojan Lazic. At the same time as being a full time psychological operations specialist for NATO, he moonlighted as a BBC technical consultant. This employment coincided with NATO's bombing of Lazic's native Yugoslavia. So we see there literally have the NATO people working at the same time, doing the same thing for BBC that they are for NATO. Your thoughts, Ted?
9: Yeah, I I mean that's right. I mean, and the thing is that, like, look, there's lots of state media outlets all over the world. I mean, there's the Australian uh, Broadcasting Corporation, there's the CBC, the Canadian version, and um, you know, it's not, it's there's nothing wrong with state-owned media, uh, but the the BBC. I guess what's a little bit – what's interesting about this piece is that it points out this glaring gap between the perception of it as being incredibly serious and staid and unbiased – and disinterested, and I think that's just because of the nature of the way that you know it's produced. It, it's the, the graphics, the, the music, the uh, the tone. Everything is meant to convey this uh, seriousness, and that that means credibility. But there's a you know the reality is that it is state propaganda, especially when it relates to the UK itself and its own issues. And so, I mean, you know, th- there is something. Kind of hilarious about that big gap. The CBC doesn't have that kind of outsized reputation, but and it also doesn't serve as a direct vessel of the state in to quite the same extent as the BBC does.
2: You said in in your last a last part of your answer, uh, you were talking about the BBC during World War II being used uh, to to transmit uh, communications from the French. To the, to the underground resistance, and you said that w- wasn't journalism. And you're saying that made me reflect upon, and I know Garland's going, oh, here he goes again, that NBC News piece, in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. So not only... Was the BBC doing that during World War II? The United States is doing it. They did it during the invasion of the Iraq war, transmitting all of that blather and foolishness, and we're doing the same, and now they're doing the same thing, under the pretext of this info war with Russia as though Russia's going to watch NBC News and go, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> uh, we really have to change our tactics because look at what uh, uh, NBC is saying.
9: Yeah, and it's it's actually in some ways a, a worse and a bigger deal when NBC does it because NBC is a you know it's a um, it, it's a it's a private owned by a private corporation um, so or I should say a publicly traded corporation and so it, because it's a company that's profit driven uh, people don't really think that they're an arm of the state of, of the of the U.S. state and that they've traded away their independence in exchange for access. And for, you know, who knows what other shadowy behind the scenes contracts there are, private contracts there are between, uh, you know, U.S. government agencies and uh, NBC or its, uh, you know, its affiliates in its corporate group. Um, But, yeah, it's in a way, you know, you can't be shocked that the BBC is, you know, propagandizing for the British monarchy. It is the BBC. But NBC you know, they should just be about the Benjamins. Uh, you know, they should just be trying to uh, be entertain. You know, in, it should be infotainment. It should be entertaining, and it should be it should be newsworthy. And um, uh, you know, but they're doing the same exact propaganda.
0: Well, the other thing, and I think we need to talk about this. Another thing that Alan talks about is the myth of a left-wing bias. You know, kind of the left, like the left-wing bias at uh, at, uh, at MSNBC, where there's all of the old uh, retreads of uh, the Bush administration. Here's the thing about it. If Joe Biden is the left, a guy who who literally is trying to overthrow every country in the world that actually is left, then sure. If what they've done, it it seemed to me is they've taken the so-called left and moved it to a point where it has nothing to do with the traditional moral ideological compass of the left leaning ideology and just said that person's left because they got a rainbow flag, and then now, okay, then there's a left-wing bias. Your thoughts on the this myth of this so-called left-wing bias, be it in CNN, BBC, MSNBC, whatever the case? Ted Rall.
9: Well, I think it's a sub. It's a sub. Uh, it's a subset of how in the United States the Democratic Party is the left, and the left is the Democratic Party, and the right is the Republican Party. The Republican Party is the right. You have the, it's. It's sort of that same, and it's. It's funny because I think. In the mindset of conservative media that criticizes uh, people, you know, people like Biden as being left, or uh, M- or MSNBC as being left, I think they kind of it kind of works for them in that, it, as you said, Garland, it pushes the fifty-yard line of American politics down the field, but ironically, it also I think inadvertently gives them gives these uh, you know sort of center left or corporate left or fake left, whatever you want to call them uh, outlets, it gives them it provides them with cover because if they're being attacked as left, and I've seen this happen over and over uh, when I confronted an editor of mine at The New York Times, he was like, well, the you know the, the one side says we're too far left, the other side says we must we are too far right. Obviously, we must be just right, just like Goldilocks. <laughs> and I was like, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't necessarily follow, but it does give them cover, and uh, you know, and then that completely delegitimizes, you know, the actual left, who might as well not exist on the airwaves.
2: There's an interesting element in this piece as well. They talk about between '94 and 2014, Salman Rushdie, Suleiman, Radmanish worked for the BBC news service helping to produce content targeting the Afghans. And then they've got a, a picture of Salman Rushdie, <laughs> and they're saying those who were angry at Rushdie's stabbing have been missing an action over the Julian Assange piece. And so this shows really a weakness in a, a glaring hole or a, a clear
9: evidence of bias. Uh yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, uh, you know, you can't watch 10 minutes of uh, of broadcast uh, cable news, uh, CNN or MSNBC or Fox News without running headlong into some kind of crazy bias, uh, as I always like to say. And I will keep saying it's always about usually 99 percent of the time. It's more lies of omission than lies of commission. Mm-hmm. It's always what they don't tell you. It's always right. what they leave out. It's always it's always the absence of context, and um, you know, or the, or comparisons. You know, like uh, you know, those of us who are accused uh, of whataboutism. You know, whataboutism is a way to say that we should that you know people should be able to talk about stories devoid of context. Whataboutism is about context. And, uh, you know, context matters in
0: news. Ted Rall is a, a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Go to his website, R-A-L-L dot com. That's an easy one, Rall to see all of his latest work. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.